Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. Holy cow, have we already done 25 episodes since January? My goodness. Okay, I guess we have. I'm Josh Ho, among other things. I'm a formerly, inca- I'm formerly incarcerated, freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. First, the news. Well, actually, there really isn't any news. I haven't written much this week, and I haven't done uh, much in the way of things to report, except a lot of interviews uh, over the last uh, couple days. I went to so many meetings this week, I didn't have time to do much. Uh, We were kidding. I was kidding around with someone uh, earlier about how uh, meetings for me are usually about five minutes or ten minutes of things that uh, are really useful to me and another 45 minutes of stuff that uh, I, I try very hard to stay tuned into. Um, I guess there's one other thing I should mention that the return of my long running series of recaps of the show, orange is the new black, which is called orange, black or bleak, uh, all written from the perspective of a formerly incarcerated person will be coming back right after the season six premiere. Uh, I have written a recap of all 65 current episodes. So I guess, uh, I'll be getting back to writing that pretty soon. Uh, I've been kind of obsessed with the question of reentry uh, over the last month, in particular with the subject of employment since my discussion with Brandon Krostowski and Thomas Lennon of the Knife Skills documentary. A few weeks ago, I also read an analysis. I read an analysis by Fifth Third Bank, suggesting that in our current economy, that the most important business opportunity right now is formerly incarcerated people. So it seems like there's a lot of opportunity, but at the same time, Prison Policy Institute last week published a paper suggesting that employment discrimination against formerly incarcerated folks has never been higher. In fact, that uh, problems with employment for formerly incarcerated people are at the highest level, actually a higher level than they were during the Great Depression. So anyway, with this as a backdrop, my interview this week is with Richard Bronson. Richard Bronson is the CEO of 70 Million Jobs. He started his career on Wall Street and he was riding a wave of success before he became one of the people indicted for security fraud at Stratton Oakmont, the firm whose story was famously shared in the Martin Scorsese movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. After serving his time, like many of us, Richard struggled with reentry, eventually finding himself at Defy Ventures. His reentry experiences informed the eventual creation of 70 Million Jobs, a website which has backing from Y Combinator as also was a South by Southwest Accelerator pitch finalist. Richard, welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, You've told this story. I've read it several times. Uh, I feel bad asking, but would you give us a short version of how you ended up in prison? Yeah, uh, and I need to uh, correct the record a little bit on what you said. Okay. Um, I... I started, uh, I'm from New York, and I started working on Wall Street in the 80s, working for a number of big investment banking firms. And then uh, in early 1990, uh, I heard about this company that some friends were working at called Stratton Oakmont, where young guys uh, were making a great deal of money on Long Island. So uh, while I was skeptical, I checked it out and I discovered that, in fact, they were making a lot of money on Long Island (laughs) and I decided to join them. Uh, I soon became a partner at the firm 
And after about a year there, I left to launch my own firm in South Florida called Biltmore Securities. Uh, and it was from that that uh, I got in trouble with the law. Okay, uh, so you weren't originally in trouble. Uh, you didn't get in trouble at Stratton Oakmont. You got in trouble at the second firm that you created. That, correct. That's correct. Okay. Yes. You end up in prison. Uh, what what was that? How would you describe the fall of uh, the move from being uh, having a successful corporation to going uh, to prison? It was it was quite a quite a uh, meteoric fall indeed. Um, I was in South Florida. You know, I, I, pretty much anyone would describe me as a big shot. Uh, I had five hundred people working for me. And I knew everyone, and I was best friends with every celebrity in town. And I drove Ferraris, and it was a very glamorous life uh, of drugs and sex and rock and roll and lots of money and private planes and all that stuff that was depicted in Scorsese's movie. Mm -hmm. Um, However, like most people who do go through the criminal justice system, um, I came out of it essentially... Uh, destitute, and generally homeless. You see, I paid everybody back prior to my arrest. Mm. Uh, My partner and I thought it was, A, both the right thing to do, and we thought, we knew we were going to get in trouble, so we thought perhaps this could mitigate it somewhat. Absolutely. Uh, And whatever money I had left over, uh, going through lawyers and fines and all the like, I gave away to charity because I felt just so awful uh, I, I, as I was going through the whole experience and believe me, I don't consider myself a saint. I knew what I was doing was wrong. Uh, I have no excuses. I was stupid and I was greedy and I was impatient. And, uh, like I say, despite paying everybody back, I certainly should have been punished for it. So, however, when I came out of prison, I had no idea what to do with my life and I had no options and no opportunities that I could see. And it took me several years to really kind of get on my feet and begin to put the past behind me. And as you mentioned, um, that came through my involvement with this nonprofit, Defy Ventures. Uh, I served as director in New York there. And it was very, very um, helpful for me uh, to kind of, it was good for my karma, good for my soul. I felt like I was helping people. Um, eventually, however, I became somewhat frustrated because, uh, this nonprofit along with many, many, many others that I knew around the country that I worked with, despite their best intentions and despite all these wonderful people who were giving so generously of themselves, uh, I felt like they ultimately in the aggregate weren't making that much of a difference. Mm. And primarily the work that they do in general, is with folks who had just been released from prison. The question I always had, well, what about the people who were released a few years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago? Uh, There's many, many more of them. There's 70 million of them walking around. And who's there to help them? Uh, And the answer um, was pretty much nobody. Let Let me take one step back. So you come out and you said you were pretty much destitute or homeless or close to homeless. And how did you get from destitute and homeless to Defy Ventures, uh, if you don't mind sharing that. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank God I had a sister with a couch. <laughs> um, so that's where, that's where I laid my head. And I always knew at least 
at her place, there would be a meal for me. But that was that was about as much as she could do for me. Um, I, I um, you know, I'm frequently asked by people uh, who are coming out of prison um, for my advice on how to best handle reentry. Mm-hmm. And I made a lot of mistakes in my reentry, so uh, I'm kind of a case study. I thought when I came out that I could hit the ground running and I was a big shot before and everybody knew I was a big shot. So, of course, I'm going to be a big shot again. I just got to get my mojo back. I just got to get my swagger back and my confidence. But I discovered that I wasn't a big shot. You know, I should have learned the lesson of humility in prison because if you can't learn about humility scrubbing the toilets for 100 men, you know, when are you going to learn it? Uh, but when I got out, nobody wanted to have anything to do with me. People I knew ran from me. They feared I was radioactive. People I had lent money to and I had helped disappeared. And people who didn't know me, you know, saw, you know, there's this guy's got the stigma of, you know, uh, uh, of a felony uh, record. We don't want to have anything to do with him. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's what everybody faces when they come out of prison. It is a life sentence, essentially, as long as people uh, can do background checks or do a Google search on you. Um, So how I, I, I made a lot of mistakes trying to find the right thing and nothing really worked. And I felt like I was banging my head against the wall, one bad situation after another until I kind of hit rock bottom, you know, and I said, you know something, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. I'm not a big shot, you know, suck it up, be humble and get involved with a company that, you know, or an organization that you're not going to be running the thing. And that's how I came to the five ventures Mm -hmm. and you know, thank God they would have me. Yeah. Yeah. Just to show some solidarity, I spent two years cleaning toilets in prison. So I, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Uh, so you get to Defy Ventures, you go through Defy Ventures. Uh, how did you get, so you're saying that you got started to get frustrated at Defy Ventures because they weren't uh, helping as many people as you thought that they probably could. And you've seen this fit your own failures through reentry and banging your head against the wall. I mean, I remember famously, I've told this story a bunch of times that uh, when I got out, even though I've had education and I'd been working for 20 years, I couldn't get a uh, job bussing tables. So I understand that part yeah. too. Uh, yeah. So where does the idea for 70 million jobs come up? Well, you know, and I, I certainly don't want to point the finger at the five ventures Uh, per se, because I think they do a great job for what they do. Um, Most of these nonprofits um, rightfully take a very holistic approach to their clients, you know, folks who have been recently released. Um, They want to help them, you know, with employment and job readiness, but there's also issues sometimes of mental health or substance abuse or housing or family issues. And all of the stuff that they get involved with is very, very high touch, time consuming, and it, and it does not scale at all. So as a result, all these, you know, to do what they do, um, all these nonprofits and community organizations have remained hyper local. Additionally, nonprofits typically attract certain types of people of which I am not one. 
I am a, uh, I am a very, very aggressive guy. And I was kind of like a bull in a China shop at that place. Mm. And I, as I would be at any nonprofit, I want to see results right away. And nonprofits don't operate that way. Nonprofits, unfortunately, spend 80% of their time maybe in fundraising. Sure. So my feeling was that this is, this is, a, this is a space and uh, an industry, so to speak, reentry, that is crying out for disruption. It is crying out for a different approach. And I thought it was crying out for a for-profit approach, whereby the profitability of the business could take it and scale it as far as it possibly could go. Mm-hmm. Also, it needed to employ technology to really, truly you know, achieve its potential. And most nonprofits just don't have the resources you know, to be involved or, or, or have the opportunity to attract people, you know, who, who are involved with technology. So I, I, I uh, left my nonprofit gig. Um, I spoke to a bunch of people before I left, a bunch of VC firms. I said, do you think I'm crazy? Is this investable? You know, uh, and they all urged me, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Do it. So I took a deep breath and I did it. And almost immediately, the city of Los Angeles, uh, and I was operating out of New York, the city of Los Angeles contacted me and said, we heard about what you're doing. We'd love to partner with you. Can you come out here and help us? Because the mayor wants to increase employment opportunities for the city's formerly incarcerated. Gotcha. So I went out to L.A. for about five months and I worked closely you know, within that municipality. It, you know, it was an interesting experience. Uh, at times I felt like I was working at the department of motor vehicles <laughs> where, where things just don't really get done. Uh, people talk about it, but nothing gets done. Um, but you know, it was still, uh, instructive. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to participate in Y Combinator, uh, in Northern California in Silicon Valley. And that was something I was really dying to do because I knew, that I would have the opportunity to learn a great deal, uh, make connections, um, avail myself of mentorship, and also access you know, funding from angel investors and venture capital firms, um, which I needed. Right. So uh, I think somehow or another, I talked my way into getting in there. Uh, I was easily the oldest person there. <laughs> And the least technical person as well, but somehow or another, you know, they they saw fit to include me, for which I am deeply appreciative. And the experience was all that it was cracked up to be and much, much more. I loved every minute of it. And at the end of it, um, I had the opportunity to raise uh, enough money to really launch the business properly. And I decided to stay in the San Francisco area where we are currently based. Gotcha. So recently, in the last week or so, we've learned two things, at least according to one bank, formerly incarcerated folks are probably the biggest opportunity for businesses right now. But at the same time, formerly incarcerated folks are having more problems getting hired than at least some people say they even did during the Great Depression. Yeah. What is, what is the most frequent reason? Uh, what, 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 do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, uh, and this is central to what uh, we do at 70 Million Jobs. Um, what you have uh, is on the uh, we've you know we have a marketplace essentially, which on the one side you have people with records who are 
you know, uh, very are desperate to get jobs. They need them. Uh, some of them need them to eat and to feed their families. Other need other of them are free on supervised release under parole and probation, where a requirement of the release is that they have a job. So you have people on the one side who desperately need jobs, yet they experience pain every step of the way. Uh, one is that they are not familiar generally with a traditional job search. It's often the first time that they've been doing this. And number two, you know, how do they address their past and what will be the reaction of potential employers? Uh, so you have pain on one side. On the other side, however, you have a great economy where we have uh, historically low unemployment and where the government says there are more than 6 million unfilled jobs out there in corporate America. So you have big corporations that are desperate to fill jobs um, and, and they're finding it an incredible challenge to attract and retain talent. Well, I figured, well, can't we put them together? You know, we can solve each other's problems and we'll be the middleman, so to speak. And we'll, you know, uh, um, uh, have a revenue model that's based upon the, the companies paying us to access this vast pool of ignored talent. Um, so we, we put together this huge community. We have over a million active job seekers in our community and we work with more than 250 nonprofits and community organizations and governmental agencies around the country. So we really have this huge, huge stockpile of assets, so to speak, of supply. Then we went to the largest corporations. Um, and um, because of their desperate need, we have discovered that there is a great deal of interest in what we're doing. Um, there are some companies are just not there yet, not even nearly there yet. And honestly, I'm ashamed to say it's the San Francisco area where we have all these big tech companies that employ hundreds of thousands of people that are run by some of the most progressive liberal managements out there who folks who talk a good game, but when it comes to, to actually, you know, stand up and say, yeah, we, we're interested in hiring some of these folks. They are among the worst. Um, if the economy weren't so good and unemployment so low, um, my job would be 10 times harder. But because it's good, um, we have had, you know, forgetting about Silicon Valley, but the rest of the country, a high level of receptiveness. And, and one by one, we are signing up some of the largest employers in the country who are accessing our pool of talent. And that makes me uh, curious when you talk about the people who are resistant. What seems to distinguish the companies that hire formerly incarcerated folks uh, because of the situation in the economy and those that aren't? Well, there are certain companies out there that really and truly embrace um, the mission aspect of what we do and uh, embrace it within their company as well. There are certain companies that have figured out that hiring folks with records is not only the right thing to do, it's not only the humane thing to do, but it turns out it's very, very good business. And I'll tell you why. Sure, there are tax credits, substantial tax credits that the federal government 
provides companies when they hire people with records. Sure, there's a bonding program, essentially insurance, that protects the company when they hire these folks in case something bad happens. But um, what really and truly companies discover across the board, and it's not just my or my company's experience, but it's the subject of, of many studies that have come out, particularly recently, it turns out that people with records actually emerge frequently as the very best employees that a company hires. It turns out that because these folks don't have so many choices, because they don't believe that the world owes them a living, because they have not had too many breaks in their life, that when a company actually does go out on a limb and give them a chance the typic- typically what they end up doing is rewarding that company with loyalty mm-hmm. and great performance. And, you know, in the HR world, human resource world at companies, there's two issues, attract talent and retain it. Companies have a very hard time retaining talent because people will go jump across the street if they can make a nickel more an hour. Um, certain industries are, you know, for one job, they've got to hire five people over the course of a year. It's just so hard to keep people. Well, guess what? Not only are my guys performing better, but they're sticking around longer, substantially longer. So what ends up happening, that's a bonanza. That's a home run in the HR world. Companies report that when they hire these folks, their employees, the morale goes up because employees are proud that their that their employer has taken a chance on somebody like this. Communities appreciate their leadership as corporate citizens. So many good things come to companies who do this, and it just it's just education to get one at a time. And we're doing it, and they're discovering that. So I've noticed two things though. There's kind of a flip side in a way to the people who jump for five cents. Is that at least where I'm at. Uh, one of the things we've seen with, for instance, the Medicaid work requirement bills and whatever is companies and chambers of commerce that seem to want to fill or to, to, to meet that need in the economy by putting formerly incarcerated people into jobs that don't have a chance at a living wage, don't mm-hmm. have a chance at benefits and continue to keep that churn going as long as possible to keep uh, corporate profits high and wages low. Uh, how do you, how are you trying to address that or how do you think that is best addressed given? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good one. And it comes up all the time and, you know, me and my company are involved in lots of organizations, you know, advocacy groups, um, and blue ribbon commissions and different municipalities. And there's two schools of thought here. On the one hand, um, you know, my applicants, you know, folks with records, they need a full-time job, not part-time, not flex hours, not gig economy. That's not what that, what's best for them. They need to know where they're going in the morning and what their hours are, and they need reliability, and they need benefits. They need medical care. They need to be able to, you know, their family can go to a doctor. All of that's really important. And a lot of jobs, uh, as you point out, you know, or don't provide that because companies have figured out ways to cut costs and do it another way. So, but on the other hand, you know, my guys desperately need a job and they need some income. 
And so the question is, is a lousy job better than no job at all? You know, and I, I will tell you, I'm torn. And depending on the day, I, I you know, I, I, I have not, on my, as far as I'm concerned, and I can say the folks I work with, we're not really sure what the answer of that is. When I see a family where, you know, the breadwinner, the, you know, the husband or the wife or the mother or father starts working, there's, some, there's a redemptive power of employment when they bring home a paycheck. And, you know, being able to feed your kids, you know, when they have nothing, um, you know, and, and, and if that will prevent someone from going on the streets and getting in trouble again, well, sure, that sounds like a good thing. And it also sounds like a good thing because if you have a job, it's always easier to get another job and work your way up. But then again, like you, po- like you point out, sometimes it, it's almost an illusion and it's doing potentially more harm than good because, hey, we're getting people jobs, but there's such lousy jobs. You know, in the state of Florida, in the state of Texas, uh, minimum wage is $7.25 and 25 cents. That if, if you have, if to live on one's own with that, with that income is impossible. If you had a, a family, you know, there's no way you're leaving poverty from that. So is that better than really facing the fact that we need to have real jobs that provide a pathway? And wouldn't the money that we waste on reincarcerating people because we think that when they get out of prison or jail, even though they have no path to and no trade, they haven't learned anything, and yet we expect them to stay out of trouble, and inevitably, you know, the the opposite occurs. So it's a mess, you know, and and it's a big problem. And I, for one, don't know the answer to that one. Well, it is. It's interesting because it seems like, in a sense, you gave one answer before, which is that they're really that most companies are struggling retaining employers, employees. You would think. And so yeah. it seems like there's a story there to tell that, you know, I know, for instance, there's two fairly prominent uh, companies in my area that do hire formerly incarcerated people. They've built their business model around sustainable wages and uh, health benefits. And, yeah. and these are restaurants, not exactly, you know, traditionally the kind of people that do this. Uh, so have you been able to have those conversations with some of the people, the businesses that you work with or... Yeah, but we're interested truly, um, and I know who you're talking about, and I'm, I'm, I'm in, involved with them very, very actively on an advocacy level, um, and I'm frequently sp- at speaking engagements along with those folks. But those are small businesses, sure, and they are nimble enough, and because the owners of those businesses you know, uh, are principled and, and moral and people of faith and, and just terrific saints, you know, they can get that done. When I set out with 70 million jobs, my goal was not to figure out how we can get a few people hired. My personal goal is to get a million people hired. And to do that, I need to engage the very largest employers in this country, not to get a few people hired, but for them to hire 10,000, 20,000 people. That's what I'm after. And these companies are not changing their, their models, you know, overnight. It's just not happening. Little by little, I am seeing progress. 
little by little, the zeitgeist, the attitudes in this country towards criminal justice in general are changing for the better. Certainly, I got out of prison in 2005. In the 13 years, I've seen a big difference positively. But, you know, things move slowly, but they are happening. The only thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on in this crazy polarized, you know, country that we've got right now, um, forget about Trump, forget about Jeff Sessions as attorney general, but the Democrats and Republicans generally agree that the criminal justice system ain't working. When you have the Koch brothers who are as arch conservative as you can possibly be, um, have a keen interest in disrupting the criminal justice system and making changes. At the same time, a guy like Senator Cory Booker is also, you know, in the game and everybody else, you know, you know, it's an interesting time and it's kind of caught fire. So I really believe that change is afoot. Um, Organizations and businesses like the ones that you point out are providing models of the way it can be. And, and successful models of the way it can be. And we hope that our approach, we, we seek double bottom line returns at 70 million jobs. We want to build a big, successful company and make a lot of money and at the same time do massive social good. And I think that's a lot of that's out there right now. And, you know, insofar as one out of three adults have some kind of record, pretty much everybody has been touched by the criminal justice system. So I do believe things are changing. They change slowly, but they are changing. And since you're, as you said, a disruptive uh, or your attempt is to disrupt uh, the way reentry was done before, uh, I have Mm -hmm. to ask you a future looking question or two. And so do you have any thoughts about uh, kind of the challenges of remote work and uh, post work or what, you know, they're talking about, uh, you know, for instance, uh, universal basic income and uh, things like that. Have you thought about those challenges at all? Well, universal income, I mean, I think is an amazing concept. I think, um, you know, uh, actually uh, uh, the president of Y Combinator, Sam Altman, is very, very much in the forefront of that. And I think it's fascinating. And I do believe that there are certain basic human rights in this country, and that's what defines us as a society. You know, the right to medical care, the right to food, the right to a basic existence, you know, because we pay one way or another. You know, it's not like we're getting around it. We end up paying, and why not enfranchise people and have them be part of the decision-making and give them a chance to do the right thing? Um, you know, I, I, I do believe, um, you know, you mentioned remote work. Um, I do believe that for a lot of people who are coming out of jail or prison, a structured environment is, is generally uh, advantageous as opposed to a much looser, you know, kind of thing that, that has become popular. And again, I'm in Silicon Valley. You know, so many companies operate remotely. Um, but, you know, I think people who are new to the workforce and who have not had a lot of experience in traditional so-called legit jobs, I think they need structure. I think they need the socialization. They need to be around people. They need to make friends 
whose lives aren't on the street, you know, who can provide them kind of different examples. But do you think there's a possibility that one of the challenges is that uh, traditional work will become less available and remote work will become more what companies are demanding? Wow. Well, you know something? Um, I, 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 these are all concerns for sure. And, you know, there are a lot of smart people who are working on this stuff. Um, the way we come to work, my team and I, is we've got people who contact us or we've got their family members who contact us. And they're saying, you know, sometimes pleading and sobbing for our help to help this person get a job, Absolutely. you know, and, and while there's a place to sit back and speculate about the future. Um, and I, I don't mean to make this sound overly dramatic, but the stakes are this high. You know, we look at it that we want to get every person who comes to us for help a job today, tomorrow. And I'm not worried so much about five years from now, and I'm not worried about robotics <laughs> and all that other kind of stuff that are, that's very, very interesting but the folks that we work with don't have the luxury, you know, of, of thinking in terms of five years from now. They need food on their table today. Sure. sure. So, yeah. so, so that's, you know, that's kind of the role that we see, you know, that, that we've undertaken. And, you know, a lot of smart people will think about the other stuff. And I think it's wonderful. But I got my hands filled with millions of people <laughs> who need to work yesterday. Sure. So let me ask you one last kind of more pragmatic question. Uh, okay. Formerly incarcerated folks that are coming to your site, what are the most frequent reasons for failures and how best can applicants take advantage of the site? Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, people, uh, because, because I'm, I'm frequently in the mode of raising funds and talking to venture capital firms, like any tech startup does, one of the questions that I'm always asked is, who's your competition? And truly, we don't see that there's any competition from any other job board. There's really nobody doing exactly what we're doing. So I don't think in terms of competition like that. The competition that I feel and I fear and I see every day is the thoughts that go through my job seekers' minds on a daily basis of whether or not it's worth their effort to bang their head against the wall and have doors slammed in their face, typically for low-paying jobs, as opposed to going back to the life that they are much more familiar with, where their friends are, where they make more money, where they have a lot more fun, where they can get high and they can hang out on the street and listen to music and whatever else, as opposed to waiting in a uh, for an interview with someone who has no intention at all of even considering them. That's where the competition comes from. So, so for me, the biggest challenge is the, is the uncertainty that the applicants have as to does this really even make sense? Um, and certain people, of course, you know, they have decided that they're not going back to prison no matter what. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's a challenge. And I don't blame them, honestly, because if, if the best that I could do, if I was lucky, 
was to work at McDonald's for minimum wage and not even a full-time job at McDonald's, if that was the best opportunity I have, I'm not sure I wouldn't choose other things that might be illegal, but might be, uh, you know, have a little bit more impact in my net worth. Absolutely. So is there anything that you'd like to share before we go? Is there anything else you'd like to share about the site or about what you're working on? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to share that people like you um, are part of all the good stuff that's going on. Um, I've had the great good fortune in the work that I do to meet some truly amazing people with huge hearts who, whose, whose intentions are so pure and have no other angle other really than wanting to help their brothers and sisters. And like you, you know, my team, we have a few people, including myself, who've gone through criminal justice and who just really want to, you know, I'm a Buddhist. I believe in karma. And for me, the work I'm doing is my attempt to try to even my karma out so I can go to heaven, you know, and even the score. But I've met a lot of people, and you're one of them. You are there every day, constructively, positively, getting the word out. Um, What I would like to say also is we're in the middle of a crowdfund uh, on WeFunder. That's WeFunder.com, W-E-Funder.com, forward slash 70 million jobs. And we're raising money. We have so many people who ask us, how can we help? How can we be involved? We think it's a great business. Can we be investors? Well, if you'd like to on any level at all, small, medium, large, certainly um, please visit WeFunder. And if you have any other great ideas, if you have any suggestions, if there's something we're doing wrong and you know better, I want to hear it. Please contact me directly at Richard at 70millionjobs.com. 70 is the number, millionjobs.com. And after that, all I can do is thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to talk with you and to share these ideas. Um, it means a lot to me. Thanks so much for the kind words and also for sharing your time. Uh, I'm certain you have a million things to do. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Now my take. Richard Bronson has dedicated himself to providing jobs for formerly incarcerated folks. Yes, his site is a per-profit site, but companies that pay, but it's the companies that pay, not the formerly incarcerated people. And if he ends up meeting his goal of getting a million formerly incarcerated people hired, I will be thrilled and I will thank him profusely for helping so many of my brothers and sisters get good jobs. In general, I don't really mind when people get paid if they're doing work to help people. This work, this recover, this reentry, and bringing people back from prison work is hard work. There's nothing wrong with making money, trying to help uh, people, or providing needed services at a fair price. And in this case, he's providing the service at no price to the people who are coming back. In other words, I think Richard Bronson is doing great work. He's helping people get jobs and not charging them for the effort. What I do mind is people who build for-profit enterprises that try to hurt, excessively charge, or take advantage of those people who have little or no money, and that includes both incarcerated people and the families of incarcerated people. I do have some concerns with what's going on in the larger economy. 
with how corporations are planning to take advantage while they are hiring formerly incarcerated workers when they do. In Michigan, we just went through a bruising battle over inserting work requirements into the Medicaid expansion here. Medicaid expansion was an incredibly successful program in Michigan. One study concluded that it, caused, that it created at least a billion dollars in economic benefit to our state. Despite that success and decades of evidence that suggests that work requirements don't work, we lost that battle. Work requirements are now part of Medicaid here. We lost the battle, but why did we lose? It became very apparent to me that the reason Michigan's businesses and the GOP majority in our state government were so committed to work requirements was that they wanted formerly incarcerated and poor folks to fill the remaining demand for work, but to fill those jobs in a way that allowed companies to keep wages low, benefits non-existent, and corporate profits high. The jobs Michigan wants we formerly incarcerated folks to take are jobs that won't pay enough so that we can't pay our bills, that can't help us put enough we accrue after being released. In fact, in many cases, because these are not the kind of jobs that provide that kind of wage or benefit situation, it can leave people in worse situations than they would have if they'd invested in training or trying to find more education or doing something that would have moved them into jobs that over the long term could give them the potential to have a better life. I have concerns. I have concerns about an economy that stops needed unskilled or lightly skilled workers. I worry about an economy that cuts social services and the safety net exactly at the time the number of of possible meaningful jobs for people getting out of prison gets smaller and smaller. An economy without manufacturing jobs. In essence, a post-Amazon and Walmart economy. An economy of robots, not people. An economy without work. That is why I believe so deeply in the idea of 360 reentry that includes training for jobs that will be needed in the future economy. That is why I support the idea of teaching inmates to code and support the idea that departments of corrections should only contract with companies who train for incarcerated folks and that hire formerly incarcerated folks. I don't understand and I will never understand why a prison whose real job is to turn out people who are more safe for society doesn't insist that the companies that they do business with train people in prison and hire people when they leave prison. Makes no sense to me. We have a real opportunity right now. At the time when corporations need us most and they need loyal and long-term employees, they almost need us as much as we need them. We have to use this opportunity to insist on a new model, a model that's based on sustainability, not convenience for the companies. We can only make this happen if we refuse to act out of desperation and use what little leverage we have to build something better for ourselves and for our incarcerated brothers and sisters. Thanks again to Richard Bronson for taking the time to discuss these issues with me. Over the next months, I'll be trying to return to the subject of the tension between the demand for hiring and ongoing discrimination in hiring. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite, which is my other blog. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who's been doing the editing and post-production for me. He does an excellent job, and it's made a huge difference on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.